right. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling Stephen, I feel like I'm about to go skydiving. So. Uh, kids, grades three through six. <laughs> Go with Allie. <clears throat> By the way, that's, that's one of my favorite songs, and you guys sounded great. So thank you for singing that. All right, for, for, for those who know me a little bit, uh, when I teach Bible studies, I usually open with a, a, a certain way, and I've been encouraged to do it again. So, um, it's called a prologue, okay? So, I'm actually going to do a prologue. I've never done a prologue before during a sermon. I'm going to do a prologue, and the, the, the important thing to know about a prologue is that it may or may not have something to do with the rest of the sermon depending on how the sermon goes, okay? So uh, it, could also, it could also be a little confusing when the, con- the prologue starts because the prologue has not started yet, um, and it could be kind of confusing when the prologue ends. So I'll signify, this is an example, this isn't actually happening, um, since it's the first time, th- I'll go like this, and the prologue will start. When the prologue ends, I'll do that again, and that'll be the prologue ending, okay? So... If anyone old Monty Python fans, it's an old Monty. Did someone get that? Very good. Okay, it's an old Monty Python thing. Okay, um, so okay, ready? Okay, uh, okay. Uh, when uh, when you lay out the sermon, um, oh, this is geez, this is actually a prologue to the prologue. Okay, uh, so w- when you're laying out the sermon, you get it all done, and you have to have your ending, and I'm really trying to stick the ending this time, okay? I haven't stuck endings in the past, so just so you know, I'm going to try to stick the ending. But the opening, you struggle with openings. So I was talking to Bo about some openings, we were talking, and I happened to mention to him earlier something that pleasant happened to me earlier in the week, and it was, it was a nice little, little nugget that had nothing to do with anything. And then he said, you know, that might be a good opening. I said, no. And I thought of it, I said, yeah. And I said, okay, my problem with it is that the opening is about me playing some sports, okay? This is still a prologue to the prologue. So, and I said, I really dislike when people doing sermons refer to their things they do in sports, because it's always like a brag. It's a humble brag, but it's a, it's a brag, right? And this is in no way me bragging. And Bo said this, and it's funny how natural he said this. Just say, don't worry, Mike. No one will think you're bragging. Say, look at me. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so this is not me humble bragging, but it is now part of the real prologue. Okay, okay, so... Earlier in the week, um, for those who don't know, uh, I play recreational hockey, and I've been doing this for 20 years, something 20 years. The team that I've been playing on for almost 17 or 18 years is disbanding. It's, it's, it's time to go. It's all good. It's time to go. But I'm the coordinator of the team, 
So I have to do some planning. I'm helping to find some of the, the good guys that want to move up in the league to find a team. So I'm working with them and helping them out. And then the lesser guys, we're basically just going to disperse. And I'm talking to one of the guys that I play with, and he plays on another team. And he says, Mike, come play on our team. And I say, I'm going to refer to him as Chuck. His real name is, is, happens to be Chuck. But, <laughs> uh, but, but I say, Chuck, you, you know how I play, right? You, you, you know I'm not a good player, and I'm not a good player, right? But by the way, who don't, if you don't know hockey, you have to put like 15 bits of equipment on to play hockey. A good game for me is I've, if I put on my equipment mostly correct, right? That's a good game for me, right? So he knows how I play. And he says, no, Mike, come on, play with me. You, you could, you'll, you'll, you, you'll be on my line. And I, and I said, wow, that's great, Chuck, man, thanks. That's a big relief because I don't know where I'd play. I don't know if I would play on a team I didn't know, okay? So human nature, I'm happy. The, the human nature is, I then said, Ooh, what kind of team would have me, right? And do I want to be on a team that would have me? So, so I, looked up in the, I, I looked up in the stats, and they're like the best team in that league. It's like, oh, my gosh. And then I look at Chuck, and he's the top scorer on that league. It's like, what the? Chuck, what are you thinking? Have me on your team. That was like in the morning, all day, in the back of my head, Everything I was going on, back of my head, wow, Chuck wants me on his team. For no, I completely unwarranted. And it stuck with me. And the next day, it stuck with me. I even mentioned it to Bo, just kind of in passing. Wow, something really nice happened this week. In our world, we often have to think we have to live up to a standard. We have to perform, we have to, be, we have to warrant acceptance. It's really rare in our life that someone just says, come on. Despite your inabilities, come on. That's so rare, it sticks in your head, it sticks with you during the day, it sticks with you during the week. That's in the world. When it comes to Christ, that doesn't have to be a rare thing. That could be a everyday thing. <laughs> okay, so today we're doing, uh, we're moving on through Second Samuel, so we're in Second Samuel chapter 7. Okay, so a little context, um, you've you got to have the context. First um, Samuel, you see David called as a little shepherd boy. We don't know how old he was, maybe 10-ish, that's a guess, maybe 10-ish. Um, he, God calls him and says he's going to be the future king. Sometime later, we don't have any years. It's still that sketchy. Um, but um, he, he fights um, Goliath. Remember, in that story, you're not David. Jesus is David. You're the Jews up on the hill scared. Right? I'm behind the Jews up on the hill scared. Okay. He fights that. And then he goes through these long waiting and struggles and hardships in the rest of First Samuel, and he's thirty years old when First Samuel ends. First Samuel starts with him now the king of Judah, but not the king of the rest of Israel. Chapters one through six, 
we see a lot of intrigue. We see political intrigue, we see military intrigue, and it's, it's a lot of things are happening. By chapter six, David has become the king of all of Israel. The ark has been returned, and life is good. And you think, oh, it's good. Chapter 7 slows way down. Where first chapter 1 through 6 is adventurous, chapter 7 slows way down. It becomes very, very personal. We're going to see four things in this, four sections of chapter 7. David has a plan. God has a response, a surprising response. Not what David expected. Then we see a God's Wonderful display of grace. And then we see David's response. Let's jump in. So verses 1 through 3, David's plan. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Okay. So it's been a good time for David. He's probably around 37 now. He's at peace. He's got the whole kingdom. Everything God had promised him seems to have come in and and is in place. The ark has been brought back to Jerusalem. It's in a tent. And, and, and David has built a palace for himself, or is in the process at least. He's, he's, got a, he's got a decent place to live. He refers to it as a house of cedar. And he makes whatever request that seems very simple. Hey, I'm living in a house of cedar, and the ark is in a tent. It's not the tabernacle. We'll look at that in a moment. It's not the tabernacle. It's, it's actually in a tent that, that, that David apparently built. We can make requests. We can make plans for all sorts of reasons. They could be good reasons. They could be bad reasons. They could be out of fear or obligation or manipulation. Or it could be a sincere request. From everything we can tell, this is a, a sincere request from David. He sees that, hey, it's not right. I'm living like this and the ark is in a tent. That's not right. I want to build God a house. God's response. But that, but that, hang on a sec. It's getting longer. Look at me, I'm venturing out. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Hmm. Interesting. It could take, be taken a lot of different ways. If you read it quickly, I think the assumption is that God's just being humble. Ah, shucks, I don't need a house, right? And you could read it that way. 
But remember, there's three parts to this. And we're going to get to the final part. And, and David is going to just, I don't, I don't have the words for it. He's going to gush with thankfulness. He's going to almost ramble. I'm going to read it. It's going to sound like rambling. He's just like, it's just coming out of him, this thankfulness for what God's done for him. I'm going to suggest to you that this isn't God, you don't act that way if God's simply being humble on it. There's something going on here. David wouldn't suggest, hey, I want to build this house if it was okay for the temple to be there. So there's something going on there. The second option is, yeah, there's something going on here, but God says, eh, it's okay, I understand. That's a possibility when you interpret this, but you still wouldn't get David's response of gushing. The third option is that something really bad's been going on. And God's pointing it out. And I'm suggesting to you that that's the case. We all know that we're sinners. I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's pithy, but a little bit too glib. I'm a wretched sinner saved by grace. That's better and more accurate. But I'm a sinner saved by the glorious grace of my beautiful Savior. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Okay. God says a couple times, did I ever ask for a house? No. God was content being in the tabernacle and traveling with his people. He never asked for a house. But that begs the question, what did God ask of them? And that's scary. Give me a sec. The tabernacle is not even in Jerusalem at this point. The tabernacle is in Gibeon. And it's now like 400 years old. So it's old. And it's sort of being used. It's hard, it's hard to know how it's being used. There's some rituals going on with it. But it can't be the true proper rituals because the, the ark's not there. And the ark was part of the, the rituals. So the ark has been neglected. I'm sorry. The tabernacle has been neglected. And the ark has been terribly abused. The tabernacle represented the, the dwelling of God among his people. The ark, keeping it, I'm keeping it really simple, the ark represents the, the, the dwelling of God, the mercy of God. Remember what's in, I can't have time to go into it. This is my Bible study mode. I want to go deep. I can't do that. What's in the temple? What's in the ark? What did the cover of the ark represent? The dwelling of God, God's sovereignty, God's dwelling, God's mercy. They let the, the dwelling of God among them be abused and neglected. They've let the dwelling and the mercy of God be neglected. If you pause for a moment, something's going to hit you. 
The Holy Spirit's going to remind you of something that, you're, that you've neglected. That's good. Hang on to that. Don't let that go. It's going to become important. God didn't ask for a house, but what did he ask for? Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. Love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Were they doing that? No. Do we do that? No. Let that sit in a little bit. This must have been crushing for David. He was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He hated his sin. This must have been crushing. I'm reminded of, this is pre-exile, right? The starting of the kings. They were going to have a really bunch of bad kings and we're going to go to the exile. When they come back for the exile, they find the, they find the old scribes. And King Josiah, everyone's celebrating they found the scribes and he like is torn apart by it. He rips his clothes because we've neglected the word of God. This must have been, I, I, I can see David doing almost the same thing. The Bible doesn't say it, but I can see it happening. Oh my gosh, we've neglected him. I have the ark in a tent? Oh my gosh, what have I done? What have we done? Let's move on. God's wonderful display of grace. It gets longer. Now then, tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pastor, from, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now, I will make your name great. Despite your sin, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel the people that struggle against me. And I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked men will not oppress them anymore as they did from the beginning and have done so since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. Oh, the grace and mercy of God. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. You're not going to build a house. I'm going to build a house. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house in my name, and I will establish the, the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be his father and, I, and, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men and flogging is inflicted by human hands. But my love, my steadfast love, my hesed love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
Nathan reported to David all the words of this, of this entire revelation. Wow. I got excited over our silly hockey team. Wow. Being crushed by your sin and looking up and not seeing a judge, but seeing a savior. Wow. There's so much to be said here. I'm just going to go into David's response. And it's long. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I love the fact that he sat. I don't know what that means. That could be taken a lot of different ways. I see intimacy there. I see something so personal and intimate. And David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And why and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And this was not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord. You have, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human, a sinful human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant. You know my heart. You know I fail you. Sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and you have made it known to your servant. How great are you, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you as we have heard with our own ears. Now, who is like your people, Israel? the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods, their false gods, gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. He keeps going. And now, Lord God, Keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. As you do as you promise, so that your name will be great forever, then people will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the people in the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord God, sorry. Thank you. Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this. I love that. Because of your promise, even though I'm crushed by my sin, because of your promise, I can come to you. I can pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be blessed. No, sorry. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. One of the things about studying the Old Testament is that we see people who, for the, who, who they truly are. When I first became a, actually before I was a believer, I started reading the Bible. And one of the things I started with, I didn't know where to start, so I started with Genesis. 
One of the things that struck me is how the Bible depicts humans so accurately, and we're so pathetic. Um, one of the great things about the Bible is that you see who God is, and you see who man is, and you see our desperate need for a savior. There's a common expression in the Bible that God, God is the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For the longest time, I always figured, oh, they must be great guys, right? Because, oh, he's the God of them. Why would God be, they must be great. Then you remember, they're not great men. Abraham, he was faithful, no question about that. And he's, the, he's, the, he's our spiritual father. Uh, um, but he made all sorts of mistakes. Isaac, we don't really, Isaac doesn't do a lot. Um, uh, you, you don't be his wife and travel with him. Um, he doesn't do a lot. Jacob was a mess. I, I, I relate a lot to Jacob. He was a mess until the very end. Little footnote, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, it mentions um, Jacob leaning on his staff. That was at the very end of his life. Jacob didn't get his act together until the very end of his life. So it's often to think God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. It's easy to think of them as great men because that's how in our world we think. They must be great. No, they're, they're sinners. God is the, the God of sinners. What do we do with that? How did David deal with it? Some key things. He didn't defend himself. He didn't come and say, well, but, but, they, they, remember, remember Adam? It, it was the woman that you put in here. Right? He, didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't defend himself. He didn't deflect. He didn't dismiss. Right? He didn't rationalize. He just took it. And then he, he brought his, his sin to God, and he's met with grace. It's important to know that David wasn't perfect after this. And I don't want to spoil anything, but if you don't know it, David is going to go on and do some horrendous things. David, if that happened today, they'd be making datelines and 2020s and, 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 and Netflix things about him. He would be horrible. So he doesn't mean he's perfect. It means he's a sinner who's been redeemed and is forgiven. You see this in the Psalms. So how did this affect David? You, you, you see, even though he goes on and sins, you see it in the Psalms that this promise and this assurance of, of, uh, of God, we don't know when the Psalms were written. There's not a chronology and they're not in order. So you, you, we got to be careful with this a little bit. Um, but you can see the pattern in Psalms where David will be in distress and he'll wonder what's going on. And then he remembers who God is. 
And almost all, some, some of the Psalms, it starts with the stress and what's going to happen is remembers God and then there's peace. And I suggest to you that's the, that's the pattern, that should be the pattern of our lives. This, this cycle, oh no, I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? I've sinned. Oh, wait, there's a God who loves me and has died for my sins and be refreshed. But it's easy to say, wait, that's David. And he had that promise. Right? He had the Davidic covenant. This is the Davidic covenant. Um, Bo did the, 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 this same passage back in the fall when he was going through the covenant. So you have the, the, the covenant of creation and then the noetic, the, the, the covenant made with Noah, um, and then the Abrahamic covenant. And this, this is building on it. They're all building on, it, on itself. So this is the Davidic covenant of everything that God's going to do. Um, so it's easy to say, well, he had the Davidic covenant. Of course he felt and trusted God. Well, okay, guys, we're not under the Davidic covenant. We're under the new covenant. The new covenant is better than the Davidic covenant. So what David feels at this instance, and what he feels when we see maybe him in the Psalms, we have that plus. Where David was looking forward to the Messiah coming, we can look back at our Messiah. So what David has experienced here, we can experience on a very frequent basis. We should. What is the new covenant? That Jesus came the creator of the universe became man, lived the perfect life, lived the died a sacrificial death and the rose victoriously for our justification. That for whoever believes in him, who trusts in his salvation and not tries to, we don't try to do it ourselves, will be saved. It's so simple and yet it's so slippery. We get a hold of it, and then we, it, it slips out of our hands. But for the brief moment that you have it, focus on it. If earlier in the sermon, God convicted you of something, don't run from that. What do we do with that? Humans, we tend to do a couple of things with it. When we take our sin, we, we, we avoid it. We, we, uh, our spiritual side wants to embrace it and run to God. Our human side of it wants to just run away from it. Put your human side aside for a bit and focus on your spiritual side. Say, yeah, I'm a sinner. The second thing we do is we diminish the sin. We say, yeah, it's not that bad. Everyone's doing it. Or I... We do what David didn't do. We, 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 we rationalize, we blame someone else. Don't do that. Own the sin. Bring it to Christ. Trust that your sin, although it's terrible, although it's wretched, it's not too big for God. God is not conquered by your sin.
David had those promises in the Davidic covenant. What do we have? We are forgiven. We're redeemed. This is a hard one. We're adopted. It's easy to make a separation between or put grace and mercy together. In other words, we use them all the time, so let's define it a little bit. Um, and this is my definitions. There could be better definitions. Um, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And this is my simple brain. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We say grace and mercy. We really, in, in my simple brain, we should flip it. Mercy first, then grace. I try to do that. It's not easy. But we're forgiven and redeemed. He purchased us. He adopted us. This is where we get into the grace part of it. We're getting what we don't deserve. We're his. We're, we're his adopted children. He is never going to let you go. Some of you saw my movie with my granddaughter yesterday. No, it's not my child, it's my grandchild. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm taken in by her. Oh my. No, she's, she, uh, any, uh, wow. It's reminding me, God, that's how God thinks about me. That's weird to think. That's how God thinks about you. You're, you're his child. You're, you're the child bought by his son. You don't know how special you are. Doesn't mean you don't sin. Doesn't mean that you don't need forgiveness. But there's the Savior providing the forgiveness. It's all, it's all tangled up in itself. It's, it, so we're forgiven, redeemed, adopted, and we're deeply loved but it's not static. You're not stuck in this place. He is transforming you. He is making you more like your son, or his son, not your son, his son. We all wonder, what has God's got planned in my life? For you to become more like Jesus. In your prayers, pray, Lord, help me to be more like Jesus. I don't like me anymore. I wanna be like him. And there's a lot to the new covenant. I'm really simplifying it. We get to enjoy him forever. It's not, for this, not just for this little silly planet that we're living on right now. It's forever. We only see things clouded right now. Someday it's going to be clear. And we're going to see the Jesus, who he truly, fully is. And it's going to be amazing forever. When I was reading about um, David's response, we all respond to God differently. One of the things you gotta be careful about, you don't say, oh, I have to act like so-and-so acts. Right? Uh, when it comes to worship, there's all different sorts of ways to worship. Um, I, I have never raised my hand in any service. I, I don't know why there's something wrong with it. I never have, I've never felt compelled to. Um, so, it's, it's actually, there's actually, a, I actually do, there's, there's a specificity to this, but this is me worshiping. That's it, right? So, 
nothing wrong with the other stuff. It is good. That's more biblical than me, right? So don't think you have to worship and, 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 and show what, what David did. When I'm reading over what David's, David's um, uh, thankfulness, um, I had a couple, two thoughts. Um, one, I remember Moses. At the end of Moses' life, he's not going to go into the promised land. By the way, David doesn't get to build the temple right, because of his, his past. Um, he doesn't get to build the, the temple, but he gets to supply, get all the supplies, and he's happy to do that. So when I'm reading this, I remember Moses up on the mountaintop over with, uh, looking over the promised land that he's not allowed to go into because of the sin, the sin of striking the rock the second time. Really cool story. If you don't know it, figure it out. It's a really cool story. It tells us about our Savior. But he's not allowed to go into the promised land, but he's with God. And there's a peace and there's a rest. David goes on verbally. Moses sits there with God peacefully. But there's a third, a second one I thought of. And it's from a story that Jesus tells. We're going we're gonna to end with this. Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the, Pharisees, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman this is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus, uh, you judge correctly, Jesus said. Jesus just suckered him right in. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, I love that. He turned towards the woman. The woman who was ashamed to come and was, was on, her, on the ground crying and weeping, who everyone is ridiculing, Jesus turns to her. Everyone now is paying attention to her. He's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon, completely pretty much ignoring Simon, focusing on the woman. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but, you, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, this sinner, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. 
You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. That's really important. She's not saved because of what she did. She, she's doing what she did because she has been saved. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. She's already been forgiven. She's responding in joy for what, for what God has already done for her. But whoever, but whoever has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, it's a story in the Old Testament. Oh, sorry, this is the New Testament. It's a story in the Gospels. It's easy to say it's just a story about a woman who lived a sinful life. But I strongly encourage you to see this as the story of our lives. It's the story of our, our daily life. The gospel is not a one-time event. It's a daily, ongoing event. Every day, wake up, remind yourself, I am a sinner. I am a wretched sinner, saved by the glorious Savior. I have been forgiven. I have been redeemed. I have been purchased and adopted. Wow. The creator of the universe loves me, and I am his. Wow, if that doesn't spur on joy. We are truly, truly blessed. More than we know. I pray that you'll f turn to Christ. Don't run away with your sin. Bring your sin to him. Know that you're forgiven. And find the way to joy. I'll pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you that you love this church. Lord, thank you that you're leading this church and, you, and you're, 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 you're so good to us, Lord. Thank you for loving us despite our sins. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for showing us grace that we can possibly ever the warrant. May we be changed by that. May we just continue to turn to you, Lord. May we find rest, peace, and joy. Thank you for your son. It's through his name we pray. Amen.